0: sitting here reading all these stories and thinking, I just don't know that much about what's called Greek life. I went to Vassar College, graduated in 1981. There is no fraternity or sorority at Vassar College. And so this is a foreign world to me. So I've been looking all over for the best possible guest to really bring me inside the fraternities and, and to give me an honest take on them. And I have found you, Professor Alan DeSantis, University of Kentucky. Welcome to Wavemaker Conversations. Thank you for having me on. You know The reason I found you... Is uh, you have a book that you wrote in 2007, which is as current today and, and I imagine will be for a long time. It's called Inside Greek You Fraternities, Sororities, and the Pursuit of Pleasure, Power, and Prestige. And I bought the book. You'll be, you'll be excited to know that the price online to get it on my iPad was more than $37. Sorry. And I paid. I paid for it. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> so, so uh, I don't know what you're going to do with that money, but in, but you know, I started reading it, and it was fascinating to me because it's as if I was I was listening to the words of an anthropologist who has gone in to study the fr- the life of the fraternity and sorority and the people who belong, and at the same time, you are a member of that species, and yet. You haven't pulled any punches. So tell me, the person who really doesn't understand what fraternities and sororities are and only knows them from the bad headlines, give me the primer.
1: All right. Well, first of all, that's um, great that um, you picked up on the answer Anthropology angle, um, what I do is qualitative research, and we call it ethnographic research. And when I'm teaching my introduction courses, I often say that we're um, linguistic, cultural anthropologists. Um, so so that's, that, that, that's, a, that's a great metaphor to use. So unlike um, your experience in college, um, I have been on campuses that have been dominated by Greek culture and uh, Greek life. Uh, I pledged in 1982 at James Manish University in Virginia, and then went to the University of Alabama, and then to Indiana University. And then for the last 22 years, I've been a professor here at Kentucky. And Alabama, Indiana, and Kentucky are considered to be um, very large, powerful Greek communities. So for those of you out there that have an understanding of Greek life from Animal House. In fact, when I was seventeen, I watched that in my house and I said, Hey, that looks fun. Um, today's Greek society looks nothing like that. It has gone through a tremendous transformation um in the last fifteen to twenty years, and in many ways. You could probably even say in the last 10 years, radical change has taken place. And it's taken place because there is scandal after scandal being revealed now that we have 24-hour-a-day news outlets, we have social media. So it seems like the Greek culture is a lot worse today than it was. In many respects, it's a whole lot safer And I have a lot of older friends, after I tell them about what the Greek culture is today, who said, I wouldn't pledge today. It doesn't seem any fun. It doesn't seem like there's anything um, of value socially um, or in terms of the brotherhood and sisterhood that used to be uh, nurtured and created and engendered by the organizations. As a great case study, I started the University of Kentucky In And in 1993, fraternities, for example, were allowed to have big keg parties. Of course, that's what fraternities do, keg parties. Slowly but surely, um, two years later, they um, banned any central distribution of alcohol. So that means you could bring your own, but the fraternity wasn't going to give you any. And two years later, um, they went to a dry campus. There's no alcohol in any buildings
0: on campus. This is your university now. Yeah, University of Kentucky. Yeah,
1: um, and in fact, most flagship universities, um, state universities, University of Illinois, Indiana University, Kentucky, Michigan—you know—all the schools associated with the big um, sports conferences, the Big Ten, the SEC, the Pac-10. This is how most Greek systems are, are now run. So. Paternity brothers and story sisters are still drinking, but the idea of having these big, massive parties, um, the type that we see in Alabama house, it, it's a remnant from the past. Um, so they're now secretive. Many times they're off campuses. Um, this was one of the problems that happened here. We banned alcohol on campus, and so everybody started drinking and partying off campus, which means a lot of students got in their cars and, and drove off campus. A lot of people that owned houses um, here in Lexington got upset because now the houses that are being rented to students have turned into massive party houses. So parts are smaller. They're um, often hidden in the basements um, with guards watching to make sure they're not discovered by, by university police. Um, And the second part, I think, is hazing. I think when people think of the the great ills of organizations, Greek organizations, they think of excessive drinking and partying and and hazing. For the most part, there now is a zero tolerance for hazing across America, Um, partially because there were just too many deaths and that the national organizations were quickly becoming bankrupt. So... At the um, SAE fraternity, um, which is generally acknowledged to be, if not the biggest, the second biggest in terms of role numbers and alums, um, very prestigious, very old, from headquarters. they now have a new policy where there is no pledging process. And so that's how far we've come in 20 years, from big, excessive parties being eliminated to – to hazing and, and, uh, and pledging being, being just
0: about obsolete now. And yet, at the same time, you say some of the more nefarious aspects of it that may live on live on in, in smaller venues off campus. Uh, maybe we should take a step back because a lot of the terminology, again, for, and it's, uh, from what I read, uh, you tell me what the percentages are, but, you know, the majority of students... In, in colleges across America do not belong to fraternities and sororities, although many uh, become acquainted with them because they are social centers and there are parties. Uh, but but still, what percentage of, of, of American students belong to fraternities and sororities?
1: That is a really difficult question to answer, but at major flagship institutions, your your, your big public institutions, anywhere from 10 to about 20% of a campus will be Greek. Now, there are small colleges where um, there may be as high as um, 80% of the campus. And these are small colleges, often in isolated parts of the country where there's really nothing to do. And everyone is involved with the Greek organization.
0: And when were these born in America? When, when did the first ones show up?
1: Yeah, the first... Um, Fraternity, I believe it was in 1776 at Wayne and Mary, and, but there was um, a specific period in time in American history. It was about from um, 1870 to about 1920, where most of the large white fraternities and sororities um, came into being. Many times they came about in the early days um, with the idea of balancing both social and academic. Um, the idea of the fraternity house specifically really blossomed um, in post-World War II America when housing for students um, was so limited. Um, so this, this, these organizations have been kind of slowly developing. There was a while there where you could see the increase of interest the more conservative the nation was. There were arguments that, for example, during the Reagan years, Um, Interesting Greek life
0: increased. Let's get to your book because it's called, you know, the introduction is called "Life at Greek University." There is no such place called Greek University, but but you based your book on on a study of a particular university, which you won't name, but it's a large university. I came across terms such as the encouragement of hypermasculinity and hyperfemininity. Let's start with hypermasculinity and hyperfemininity. And what does that mean?
1: So, when I started the book, I
0: was probably a
1: Greek for 15 or 20 years at this point. And being an academic and working through graduate school, I really began focusing quite a bit on gender um, and ideas of femininity and, and masculinity. That is, in America, what are we told ideal men and women are? What do they look like? How do they behave? What do they think about? What do they value? So I started looking at these organizations um, more than just places where people go to have fun and get drunk and meet each other. I realized that really what they were, they were breeding grounds for a special type of mindset about masculinity and femininity. You know, when it's all said and done, they are boys' clubs and girls' clubs. Um, And they're created to mix boys and girls together. You know, at this point in my life, I'm really beginning to um, wrestle with ideas of, of, of masculinity and, and, and femininity. I have a young daughter, I have a young son, and I'm now really struggling with what type of lessons do I want these, these kids to, to embrace. It became apparent that for some of the most dangerous ideas of femininity and masculinity are encouraged and strengthened and reproduced in the elite organizations. And so um, all Greek organizations aren't the same. If anybody's been to you know that there are groups that are considered to be elite. Um, These are the oldest uh, organizations. These are the organizations with the big houses, um, the big money, the, the famous alums. And it's these groups. These are the coveted groups that quote all the cool kids want to get into. It's very interesting about how these groups um, negotiate and manage gender identities. And so when I talk about hyper-masculinity and hyper-femininity, um, each fall, these groups, these elite groups, um, have rush. And this is where they're trying to find the best people that would fit into their system. Right? So these elite groups are going out there and trying to find the ideal high school students. You know, with the ideal high school student. Well, for the guys... It is the stud football player, preferably the quarterback. He's good with ladies. You know, he's tough. He knows how to handle himself. He's confident. And for the girls, it is the ultra cute, ultra pretty, ultra feminine, white and thin female. But then once these groups have been specifically selected, um, you know, similarity theory has been a concept, social sciences that we're attracted to and want to attract people that are most like us. Twenty years later, I can look at a group of students, and for the most part, I can tell you within maybe one or two fraternities or sororities who they belong to they attract a, a specific
0: type. It sounds like race is a fundamental criterion. And, and again, given where our society is heading in terms of diversity, that that is a problem, right?
1: Race is absolutely a criteria. And once again, the more traditional, um, specifically in, in, in as we move towards the South, they're not desegregated. Yeah. Um, these young boys and girls want to surround themselves with people that are most like themselves. And I've also done some um, research on African-American, black paternity and sororities. And these members um, are driven by kind of the same desire. They want to be surrounded by people that are like them, that share similar interests, common histories. Now, that's not to say that these organizations are not guilty of practicing clear discriminatory behavior, making sure that from their perspective, only the right Type of people get in the Oklahoma case where um, the um, old Ditty, the song, was sung about segregating and hanging and lynching. I think is, is is a powerful testament to that. So once these brothers and sisters get into these organizations, there's an incredible amount of pressure for them to conform. And so what happens is. Um, These girls and boys that go away to have their minds expanded, their lives expanded, their values um, and beliefs—maybe for the first time in their life—challenged and questioned and unpacked and dissected. You know, that's what we do in college. We 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 allow the student to to examine them, know thyself, right? But in these organizations, just the opposite happens. Um, Their world becomes smaller. Men are told to be not just masculine, but to be hyper-masculine. So the worst qualities of masculinity are now embraced and celebrated. That's why, in fact, across the board, Greeks are significantly more likely to engage in at-risk behavior, all at-risk behaviors, than just about any other sub-segment on campus.
0: You're listening to Wavemaker Conversations. I'm your host, Michael Shoulder.
2: With Domino's new Piece of the Pie Rewards, you earn a free medium two-topping pizza after just six online orders of $10 or more. Need some reasons to order? Throw a half-birthday party for your husband.
1: Happy 36 and a half.
2: Or your cat. Ah! Or get in touch with your vegetarian side. I hold the pepperoni. But we think free pizza's reason enough. Start earning points toward free pizza with our five ninety nine mix and match deal at dominoes.com today. Rewards program is open only to U.S. residents 13 and older with a pizza profile account. Only one order per day earns points. Complete details at dominoes.com slash rewards. You must select this limited time offer. Prices, participation, and charges may vary.
0: Introducing Play.it,
2: a podcast network like no other.
0: From award-winning news programming and number one sports brands to entertainment and business leaders, Play.it is delivering storytelling at its best. We're going to be having conversations with
2: newsmakers and culture shapers.
1: I will be talking mostly about fashion and how I've been marketing all my
0: life. Tech,
2: culture, and entrepreneurship. Everything in the world of sports entertainment and wrestling and beyond. Hear what you've been missing at Play.it.
0: Recently, I interviewed one of the deans of uh, of, uh, of social psychology, Phil Zimbardo, who you, who you, whose work you teach in your class. And so, Phil Zimbardo did this famous Stanford Prison Experiment, which you're very familiar with. And it was in the early 1970s. In fact, they've just made an independent film on it that appeared at Sundance and got very good reviews. But in the early 1970s, they they broke up. Uh, they they divided. I think 24. Young Stanford students, all mentally and physically healthy, into two different groups. Twelve of them, uh, they were all they, they they were sent to a sort of a mock prison that they did in the basement of the psychology building. Twelve of them were assigned the roles of prison guards. Twelve of them were assigned the roles of prisoners. It was supposed to last for two weeks to see what the social psychology dynamics were. They had to stop it after about six days because the prison guards were starting to get brutal. So, and and this leads to Phil Zimbardo most recent work, which is how do we avoid the phenomenon? How do we teach kids not to be bystanders in situations that count, and that leads to what he calls the Heroic Imagination Project. So as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking, I know I know from having spoken to you before this, we both want the same thing for our kids. We want them not to be bystanders. Bystanders, we want them to stand up when they see something bad going on. And yet, I'm not hearing that the Greek system is a training ground for that.
1: I learned about Zimbardo's study when I was a sophomore. Um, so it was about nine months after we went through pledging. And it was one of those moments of epiphany where I I finally understood. So what happens during this process is um, the older brothers really want you to be part of their group. So they rush you hard and they say, hey, man, you know, it's all about brotherhood and we love you. And then pledging starts. And just like Zimbardo's guards, the power to abuse is far too seductive, right? The idea of absolute power corrupts absolutely. And for older brothers that are now pledging, um, this power becomes so seductive. Now, all of a sudden, for the first time, you can tell this this kid the junk, and he'll say, yes, sir, how high? And and remarkably, just like Zimbardo, um, you you mentioned that the study was planned for two weeks, but it had to be stopped after... After six days, you know, um, Dr. Zimbardo's disturbing conclusion also was that none of the 12 prisoners ever quit the study, right? right. They could have walked away at any time, but they didn't. I mean, that's the amazing thing as well, that these young boys um, that are going through the hazing process never quit. Here's the, here's the dramatic thing that, that's different. And if there, are any out, if there are any Greeks out there listening, this is what they're going to say. And it's a disturbing thing that I have to agree with. The prisoners were horrified. Many had emotional breakdowns. Many had to go through debriefings. But let me tell you what happens in the Greek system. Stockholm Syndrome. (laughs) After a semester of being abused by your older brothers, you become um, a passionate supporter of this group. And that there is something about the bond of fraternity brothers that have gone through that abuse that is unlike anything I personally have ever experienced as well. And it's very disturbing for me as a professor that teaches this, but it happened to me. 35 years ago, um, I went through hell with these group of younger brothers and older brothers. And believe it or not, we still keep in touch. We went on a, a ski trip, um, a reunion last year, um, I don't keep in touch with anyone else. There is a bond that that abuse creates
0: for us. whether there is a, a higher calling in establishing these these lifelong bonds or not, you still have to ask to what end and is you know if this is perpetuating uh, a sort of a, in a sense a racist and and you know class based system. Does the whole system need to be blown up? As I think of, of my kids coming of age, as I'm listening to you and, you know, despite the the lifelong friendships, boy, there are a lot of ways to make lifelong friendships. And I, I'm thinking, this is the last place I'd want my kids to be.
1: Very disturbing process. It gets you to an end that is lifelong friendships and brotherhood. But it is um it is a terrible price to pay. And there has to be a far more moral, far more ethical way to create lifelong relationships um and, and
0: friendships. I'm talking to you you're you're sitting there in Lexington, Kentucky, University of Kentucky, which by the way, you know, uh, we we're here in final four season. President Obama and his bracket uh, along with many other Americans are picking University of Kentucky's basketball team to win the whole thing, you know, so, so there you are sitting at, you know, in in this really this, this, this place, which has achieved the height of accomplishment in sports, uh, you know, in sports, you certainly make lifelong friendships, you work, you know, your rear off, uh, but I don't think there's the hazing or, or anything, you know, the stuff that resembles hazing. I mean, the only, the, the, you know, the, the, kind of physical punishment you have is, is done through training, you know, to a clear end. Am I right? And and you, by the way, you, you should tell us. You you were very, you're very involved, or have been, in the University of Kentucky sports program, haven't you? Absolutely,
1: absolutely. To
0: um, so tell me what tell me what your role there there is, and maybe we can you know sort of compare the sports bonding experience and and character development experience. Compare that. Tell us what your role has been in the University of Kentucky sports system. Tell us what you've observed in that sort of social cultivation in the sports world versus the social cultivation in in the Greek fraternity sorority world. Is there something maybe that the fraternities and sororities can take from the sports world to improve themselves?
1: Most of the guys that we recruit. Um, have experienced male bonding in athletics working with and for athletic teams where they've gone through hell and they've come through the fire and they are extremely bonded with fellow teammates. Um, And so the similarities between the two are are interesting. And um, there is a certain amount of hell that competitive teams um, with extremely competitive coaches – um, have have gone through i mean I hazard to guess that as cruel as we were in hazing um i'm not sure we approached how cruel Bobby Knight has been to his players so um there is something to be said about the two similarities but i I had um this level of insight not too long ago um I was the faculty athletic representative. It's called the FAR. And every university has a FAR appointed by the university president to make sure that the program is cleanly run. So let's look at our basketball. Like, they're doing something right. They're doing something right that our um, Greek organizations around America are. not And what I realized they're doing is we're bringing in young boys that are 18 and 19, but we're actually investing in their future. Um, what happens for most Greek organizations is that the organization the house is run by maybe a 19- or 20-year-old guy um, or woman. Um, and kids are really running kids. You could call them adults, but they're only a couple years out of high school. There is very little adult supervision at all. There is basically no university supervision, for the most part, as long as there's not a rape in your house or as long as you're not busted for hazing because someone caught you on a cell phone, um, you're fine. So the fact that nothing great is happening in these houses around America shouldn't surprise us. What do you think you're going to get when you stick 70 guys in a house with virtually no direction, mentoring, or supervision. We would never do that with our basketball team. So what we do with um, our sport teams, I'm just so proud of the way we manage our student athletes. Um, We have coaches that serve as life coaches as well, and we have three or four assistant coaches. But then we also have athletic trainers, and we have academic trainers, and we have tutors, um, we have a series of people that will come in and do workshops with these young student athletes. We slowly but surely mentor them in preparing them for life after they leave. Now, for our basketball team, this is crazy to say, but actually most will go on to an NBA career. That's not that's not common. Most we have twenty two um, NCAA sports. Um, women's volleyball, softball, most won't have a professional career leading. But they get no less attention and no less um, dedication from the university. So the idea then would be to really model what we do with our student-athletes. Is, it, is it that important to us? Um, I think the fact that their social organizations – is great. There's no reason that brotherhood and sisterhood has to stop. But I think there has to be an investment in the university and also with the national organization. So for 10 years, I served um, as a chapter director for uh, an organization here on campus, Sigma Pi. Today, I serve uh, a different role. I serve as the faculty advisor, which isn't the chapter director, the faculty advisor for the FAE Brothers here on campus. Um, so I'm kind of one adult presence, the FAE's a very unique group of people on campus because they're very old, very traditional, and they have an incredibly active alumni base, which is great. So the alums come back. But most groups don't have that alumni base. They have very little faculty involvement at all. And as a result, nothing spectacular happens in the lives of these boys. And in fact, Um, I would argue that just the opposite happens, that I think you may run the risk of being less expanded and less enlightened if you make a decision to pledge a Greek organization. Because now you're isolating yourself with people that are very similar to you, and in fact, you're rewarded for – Maintaining, behaving in very similar ways.
0: Which, well, which is interesting because in 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 the business world and in in our world today, that's a recipe for disaster in business. Just, just being with like-minded people from the same background. I mean, that is that is not how you form a successful organization today. And yet, at the same time, looking at some of the numbers, uh, you know, uh, you know, over the many many decades, over the century, uh, you have the figures probably uh, uh, more handy than I do. But a very large percentage of our leaders, presidents, members of the Senate, Congress, uh, Supreme Court judges have belonged to these Greek organizations. It's interesting. Interesting because there, there's a, there was a, a popular and, and very interesting article written by an author at the New Yorker and the Atlantic magazine, Maria Konnikova, uh, who actually this is how I discovered your book. She, she referred to yours and uh, your book in her piece uh, that was written in the past year, and uh, you know, and she cites some of these numbers that you have. Eighteen U.S. presidents were in college fraternities, and and all the others. But she also notes that there has been a a decline in the percentages of leaders who have have been in fraternities, and wonders—she doesn't know the answer, I guess none of us Uh, do—is that decline going to continue, Uh, and uh, what's your sense?
1: Well, um, Barack Obama, for example, was not in a social fraternity. George W. Bush was. Um, I think if the demographic of America changes, that may be—without looking at the numbers, that may be the explanation— Um, Fraternities still attract primarily Middle to upper middle class white kids Both boys and girls Um, With a growing population in America The demographic are changing Um, We now have growth in the Asian American And Latino populations Now these folks aren't being nurtured um, To the degree that that white upper middle class kids are. The idea is that if these organizations are going to be transformative, what we need to have is an extremely diverse group. So instead of attracting similars, right? I'm surrounded by a bunch of people that think like me, that look like me, that have the exact same pigmentation and bank account. Um, maybe if we want these organizations to be transformative, part of that is going to be um, diversity, That these kids should be exposed to ways of thinking and ethnicities and cultures and customs and rituals that they have never thought about before. But
2: in fact, we're getting just the opposite.
0: You're listening to Wavemaker Conversations. I'm your host, Michael Shoulder.
2: With Domino's new piece of the pie rewards, you earn a free medium two-topping pizza after just six online orders of $10 or more. Need some reasons to order? Throw a half-birthday party for your husband.
1: Happy 36 and a
2: half. Or your cat. Or get in touch with your vegetarian side. Hold the pepperoni. But we think free pizza's reason enough. Start earning points toward free pizza with our five ninety nine mix and match deal at dominoes.com today. Rewards program is open only to U.S. residents 13 and older with a pizza profile account. Only one order per day earns points. Complete details at Domino's.com slash rewards. You must select this limited time offer. Prices, participation, and charges may vary
0: introducing play.it
2: a podcast
0: network like no other from award-winning news programming and number one sports brands to entertainment and business leaders play.it is delivering storytelling at its best we're going to be having conversations with newsmakers and
2: culture shapers
1: i will be talking mostly about fashion and how i've been marketing all my life tech
2: culture and entrepreneurship everything in the world of sports entertainment and wrestling and beyond hear what you've been missing at play.it
0: Back to the conversation.
1: But I tell you what has has impressed me. I've gone for years to our national, international conferences, and I've always heard the same thing. The most dangerous groups on any campus are the groups that are the oldest ones, the ones that have been there the longest. um, And that change is very, very difficult. In the end, um, and it's happened on, on, on my campus at the University of Kentucky, most of these older groups have been um, suspended for primarily hazing um, because it's hard to change long institutional memories like that. We've hazed, we've always hazed. This is just how we do it. What I'm impressed by is that every year or so, a new organization will come on campus. And from talking to national leaders of these groups, they love these newer groups because they have none of the old dangerous
0: practices. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. just to clarify, when you say newer groups, yes. are they, they're affiliated with the older groups, but they're new chapters?
1: Well, sometimes they're new, but I'll give you a great example. The group that I was working with, Sigma Pi, about four years after I stopped working with them, because I started working with athletics, they were kicked off campus. So they were kicked off campus for four years, and they came back this year. So now they're brand new. They have to build from the, the, the ground up. And the National Sigma Pi is working with them. So all the alumni brothers come back. For example, there's no peak on campus. And peak was Ronald Reagan's fraternity. It's, it's kind of an old standard. But when, these, when a new chapter comes on and is kind of being overseen and watched um, by, by adults, they seem to do everything right. Um, these young chapters are not hazing because, of course, they're being watched. Um, they try to redefine Greek life in unique ways. They say it's uh, about developing leadership. But here's where um, the bills fall off. After about two or three years of getting that special attention from adults, we turn the group over to the kids. All right, guys, it's up to you now. And it doesn't take long until these high-minded organizations that were going to be different get sucked into the old dangerous ways of acting, behaving, because that's the path to popularity, right?
0: Where did this you know, nomenclature come from yeah. that this is Greek? These groups
1: were started by a bunch of young college men, And at the time, Latin and Greek were in vogue. And um, as a result, instead of calling the club A, B, or C, they called them Alpha, Beta, and Gamma. Um, Greek life has absolutely nothing to do with Greek or Athenian culture, which is really quite interesting. And so they like to kind of give the impression that these are old and historic and that the founding fathers were Socrates and Pythagoras and Aristotle but nothing could be further from the truth. These are boys' clubs that were invented in, you know, 1880.
0: So if I were going into college today, and I, I really had aspirations to become a leader, whether it's a business leader or a political leader, and I know from your book and from other sources that, you know, boy, if, if you want to be a leader on campus and get votes, be in a position that requires votes, you better be a member of one of these fraternities or sororities, because that the voting blocks are there. If I were coming in fresh, and again, inspired by that work of, that we've talked about at length, Phil Zimbardo. And, and I've been trained to have the heroic imagination, somebody who's going to stand up for the right thing. And you know what, that's what I, I want to meet those other people who are willing to do that. Not in a self-righteous kind of way, you know, I just, but I want to do that and I want to found a group. Now today, Greek and Latin are, are not being studied uh, in the schools. I mean, they're not popular subjects, but interdisciplinary work is very popular. I just wonder if if I were starting that group today, given your insights and given the, given the, the, the advantages of forming these lifelong bonds, but the disadvantages of how they're formed, uh, I almost feel like I would want to start a group uh, called HIP, Heroic Imagination Project, and that would be my frat. Is that possible to do on your campus today?
1: Would be very hard because um, number one, you're only going to be here for four years, and so if you wanted to go on to become a congressman, right? I would say, boy, that's going to be a lot of work, and the payoff is is, is going to be. If I was being a life coach, looking at just the ends, what I would probably tell you is pledge an elite fraternity, one that has the name, the reputation, and the alums that this elite fraternity probably isn't going to do a whole lot for you in terms of developing you as a thoughtful, imaginative, heroic leader. Yeah.
0: It'd be hard to start a group like that, though. It's, it is hard. it very hard. Your chapter four is her laxatives, his steroids. Tell me what that means, because that's that's relevant to what you're saying. Her laxatives, his steroids. What do you mean?
1: Part of this ideal masculinity and femininity and the system is a bit superficial, and that men in these organizations, especially elite organizations, all belong to gyms or actually have gyms in their um, in their basements in their houses. Um, so, body obsession with body, obsession with shaving, is huge in elite fraternities, much greater than you find. And just the opposite, since gender is always defined oppositionally, while he's getting bigger, she's getting smaller. You know, Susan Faludi wrote about that in stick. Um, So we find that in the elite organizations on campus, um, eating disorders um, are frighteningly high. Um, In the book, um, I interviewed hundreds of men and women who have kind of become increasingly obsessed about body type and body size. One of the areas, for example, that I'm investigating now as a researcher is the illegal use of ADHD stimulants on college campuses. And what I found is that um, fraternities and sororities um, use illegal stimulants far more than anyone else on campus. Um, But when I was asking why, I found out that many sorority members will use um, ADHD stimulants to fight fatigue, that they use it during periods of high academic stress like finals, but they would also use it um, because um, it's a dietful. It's, it's an amphetamine. It's speed, right? And so it's kind of a, an extra bonus that not only can they get their work done, but it also suppresses their appetite.
0: Oh, see, that's uh, that's fascinating that you're doing that work because the the only material I've read on this is people who are just trying to work extra hard and keep their grades up and and just want to put basically defy the the nece- the necessity of sleep and and work through the night.
1: In general, about one third of the campus will use an illegal stimulant once a year, and for periods of you know, high academic stress, finals papers they have to read. But as you move up into your junior and senior year, the number gets above 50%. So on campus, there's this kind of um, culture and climate that encourages um, this stigma-free drug. And I call it a stigma-free drug because students view it physically safe, they view it morally acceptable, and they view it highly effective. But when you take this group of juniors and seniors and look at Greek membership, the number um, is above 80%. So 80% of Greek culture in their junior and senior year will use an illegal amphetamine speed um, at least once a semester. And increasingly, it is used to stay awake and to um, and socialize the party.
0: So listen, as I hear those words, you know, that some, you know, many, many college students across the country are using these to stay awake, to study. But, you know, part of what accounts for the even higher use uh, among these Greek fraternities and sororities is to stay awake and party and so while I've heard you talk about you know the advantages clearly of having this social network this future business network of contacts and close friends you know as as you know if somebody's running a business out there and they're saying where am I going to get the best candidates for my business or you know where am I going to get you know the best candidates for any enterprise as I'm looking at, but I might be more hesitant. I'll have more questions or certain kinds of questions for the person who says, "Oh, I was with this particular fraternity or sorority." First thing I'd want to do is say, "Hmm, I've." I've I've heard a lot. I'm a little concerned that on the face of it, this person may not have developed the kinds of habits that I want to see in my organization, my you know very diverse organization that's striving for greatness. Am I wrong as a business person to say that? Because I, I do think there could be an issue there.
1: Greeks will often say, yeah, we party a lot, but one thing that we have is we're good with people, we're extroverted. So if you're a boss and you're looking for someone who for four years has been developing their social skills, the gifts of gab and charm, um, Greek life is a great place to do it. Now, at the same point, one of the things I'm saying is that this, these Greek culture organizations really make us isolated and insulated. If you are a member of a Greek organization, even with all the financial advantages, you're less likely, for example, to study abroad. Study abroad? No! um, you know, that breaks my heart. Like, wow, this is just the type of things that you should be doing. This is the type of things that change, change your world. Now, one thing I should tell you too, is that this isn't just me saying this. You have to ask Greeks, why by your junior and senior year, do you have nothing to do with your organization? This to
0: me always fascinates me. Well, say that again. So, 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 so. In other words, there are they're people who pledge in their freshman or sophomore years. By the, you're telling me the numbers show that by junior and senior year they start to leave their organizations. They're invisible. Is there something that can be expressed in 140 characters, the length of a tweet, or maybe a series of tweets that you think would give you hope that you know this system really is worth sa- salvaging? Uh, you
1: know, a couple of tweets. I would send out, for example, why um, do so many juniors and seniors outgrow their desire to be active in their fraternities and sororities? Has your Greek experience um, expanded how you view the world, or has it restricted? Are you less open-minded? Are you less enlightened? Um, are you less
0: challenged? Do you think people would say, "Would would would say, you know what? Yeah, I'm 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 less expanded." I mean, do you think I would get answers like that?
1: It all depends how enlightened
0: people answering. Alan DeSantis, professor uh, of communication at uh, University of Kentucky, uh, author of Inside Greek U, Fraternities, Sororities, and the Pursuit of Pleasure, Power, and Prestige, and uh, this this uh, an- anthropological journey, uh, the tour that you just gave this Vassar graduate, uh, Vassar, free of free of uh, fraternities and sororities. Thank you for joining me on this Wavemaker conversation.
1: Well, it was great.
0: Thank you. If you like what you've heard on this episode, you can subscribe to Wavemaker Conversations on iTunes, and you can always find this podcast on the new CBS podcasting platform, Play It. That's play.it. I'm your host, Michael Shoulder. Thank you for listening.
2: With Domino's new Piece of the Pie rewards, you earn a free medium two-topping pizza after just six online orders of $10 or more. Need some reasons to order? Throw a half-birthday party for your husband.
1: Happy 36 and a half.
2: Or your cat. Ah! Or get in touch with your vegetarian side. Hold the pepperoni. But we think free pizza's reason enough. Start earning points or free pizza with our five ninety nine mix and match deal at dominoes.com today. Rewards program is open only to US residents thirteen and older with a pizza profile account. Only one order per day earns points. Complete details at Domino's.com slash rewards. You must select this limited time offer, prices, participation, and charges may vary.